0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books and History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Claire Clark. I'm one of the hosts of your channel. Um, And today I am talking to Catherine Rye Jewell. Professor Jewell is a professor of history at Fitchburg State University, and she is the author of the just-published Live from the Underground, a history of college radio, which is out from the University of North Carolina Press. Kate, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you so much for having me. I am so excited to have you on the show. Um, I, as I was saying before, I hit record, um, when I saw this book was coming out, I had to do it on the NBN because my parents actually met working at a college radio station in the early nineteen late nineteen sixties, early nineteen seventies, and then I had a stint as a college radio DJ. And I was like, "Here is a definitive history, um, a history in which I played a part, and I have got to talk to the person who, um, who's researched this." So I'm so excited to have you on. Oh, thank you. Um, I wonder if. If, if you could uh, start by telling us a little bit about yourself and then um, what, uh, what brought you to writing live from the underground? Yeah, so I grew up
1: in Vermont where I didn't actually have access to college radio when I was growing up. Uh, the only radio station that was associated with a university that I could pick up in my bedroom was the Dartmouth College Station, which was a commercial rock station for the most part. Uh, and I went to Vanderbilt University in Nashville, Tennessee, where I got involved in college radio radio. From the first day of arriving on campus, I went to a student activities fair and I learned about this radio station and I was just blown away that they would let me on the radio. I just thought this was like the weirdest thing that I'd ever heard that I could I could be on radio because I'd always loved radio. I'd always loved music, but I was less familiar with this this thing of college radio and I majored in history and anthropology. I went on to become a historian, but that college radio experience remained this really central, foundational experience in my college life. It's where I met some of my best friends. It was just kind of this anchor point of who I was as a college student. And I had, you know, like, Many of us do these very warm feelings about my time, even though it didn't have anything to do with what I wanted to do professionally, or so I thought, it it was this really important moment that I continued to feel uh, you know, very strongly about, even after leaving Nashville, moving to Boston, going on to getting my PhD, discovering other college radio stations going forward from there. And so it was in 2011, while I was in my first year on the tenure track, I was, uh, I had a small child, I was about to have another small child, that I learned that Vanderbilt University was selling my radio station. And so I started asking these questions about, well, why is it that we feel so strongly about these stations? How did they come to be? How did, administrators decide to let college students, 18, Mm -hmm. 18, 20 years old, (laughs) go on the airwaves to begin with. And so I decided, well, I would delve into that history. And I discovered this amazingly rich world of sources and stories and just hilarious things that I could talk about in addition to this topic, dovetailing well with the kinds of questions I'm interested in as a historian, too.
0: So I think we were college students, I think, in, a, in around the same era. I went to Vassar College from 1999 to 2003. And the radio show that I had at our station was WVKR. And our radio show um, kind of specialized in what we called um, girly indie rock, mm-hmm. things like Telecraft and, and bands like that. Um, and um, so I'm now in middle age. But this is the first time I've read a book for the New Books Network that reflected my own history, where I'm reading the book, and I'm recognizing the names of the bands, I'm recognizing the indie labels, I'm Mm -hmm. recognizing myself and some of the on-air shenanigans Mm -hmm. that college radio hosts um, engage in. Um, And so as I was reading, I was kind of imagining that um, many people in your book's audience will have a similar reading experience Um, And I wondered if you could talk a little bit about that. Um, And, and, you know, historians, we uh, um, shed a lot of ink and tears over whether the histories we are writing are internal or external. Um, And Would you call Live from the Underground an internal or external history of college radio? Well, it started internal.
1: Uh, Certainly, it was this very personal experience that led me to write it. But the thing is, is that as I started asking those questions, it led me to see the history that I had experienced in a very different light, and that a lot of the assumptions that I had about why I perceived stations to be disappearing, like my own, uh, were the result of different historical forces than I thought. And so over it took a while, uh, but over time it became this much bigger thing than, you know, when I first thought of writing this book, I, I can remember the moment I was driving out to my job. And I have about an hour long commute and I was listening to college radio and this thing was, you know, had happened with Vanderbilt's radio station. And I just was sort of struck by how easy for one that sort of, you know, put that in scare quotes, this history would be to do that. I could find a lot of it in the sources of people I know in talking to people that I know. And then, you know, I could go to student newspapers and that I could kind of trace my own personal connection through it and that it would be this kind of personal exploration. I didn't even conceive of it as a history book. It was just going to be this mm-hmm. thing I was going to do on the side. And over a I guess maybe the historian kicked in or I just realized that these stations were involved in so much more than I thought that you know I guess maybe I didn't and maybe this is a 90s kid phenomenon mm-hmm. that I didn't really see what I was doing as being involved in bigger political discussions you know that the biggest fights that we had on the radio station were sort of you know rejecting what was going on in the commercial Rock end of the FM dial and rejecting that kind of corporatization post 1996 telecommunications act. But, you know, I had no idea that that's what was actually going on in 1998, 99, 2000, when I was doing college radio. And so uncovering those regulatory, political decisions, transformations in higher education that were shaping college radio started to turn the book into something else. And it was through that process that it actually opened it up to, I think, be more resonant of more participants' experiences and to question a lot of those feelings of nostalgia that I had and that others had about what college radio is, that it was this very personal experience and it's personal to everyone, but it meant very different things to people over time as college radio evolved. And it was shaped by these larger national forces in the transformation of broadcasting and the music industry and the development of independent music scenes and and how they all how they all networked together. And I think I think it's interesting, though, being somebody who participated in college radio at the end of the 1990s, at that 1996, post-1996 Telecommunications Act moment, pre-internet streaming, because we were the tail end of Gen X. We're older millennials, I guess would be the other one, or mm-hmm. Xenials, like the Carter Babies. And... A lot of us were looking up to that quintessential Generation X experience that was really starting to transform by the early 2000s. And there was always a sense of this kind of golden age that I was trying to uphold. There was this culture that was established and that I was trying to perpetuate, but I didn't ever really participate in that golden age. And so I think a lot of this book was me trying to unpack what that, that kind of nostalgic view of 80s and 90s under, underground music scenes and that influence on the mainstream that those scenes had, uh, that I was trying to come to terms with that and to how I didn't quite feel like I had that experience because everything that came before me was so much cooler, right? I was always looking up to something. (laughs) You know, even now, 20 whatever years it is later, you know, it was amazing what I got to participate in. Uh, I definitely had those experiences, but at the time, I didn't feel that I did.
0: Um, Before we dive into an overview of the book, I wondered if you could tell our listeners just a little bit more about your research and writing process, because this book has got – it's got um, interviews. It's got this rich um, archival history. Lots of really fun archival finds. It has chapters that start out with um, playlists mm-hmm. that um, uh, ran on the radio. So, um, can you tell us a little bit about the the research that went into this book?
1: The research for this book was so much fun that like I can't I can't even describe how much fun this was because it, every turn of the page in some of these collections was like one more hilarious anecdote. And that also became the challenge of doing this book. Uh, I have the 20th century historians problem of that. There are so many sources. And that Mm -hmm. comes from the fact that they're housed at universities. And so a lot of the stories and the back and forth that I got between DJs and the college in general, a lot of those played out on student newspapers. And so that's it's this really wonderful resource because a lot of them are digitized. It's oftentimes the first thing that a university will digitize from their collection. In addition to yearbooks, and they're full text searchable, so I could go through and just really easily find. Uh, and a lot of these debates played out in the letters to the editor <laughs> uh, sections mm-hmm. of college newspapers, which is is its own sort of vibrant space just in general. Um, And then the archives themselves were that a lot of the stuff that ends up in the archives tended to be about controversies at the stations. Or if I was lucky, they would be, you know, some very organized DJ would manage to save all of their playlists and they would send them to the archive. Or a lot of times, usually what happens is a station would undergo renovation and the stations had to clean out. And so that's how a lot of the records end up in the archives to begin with. Or there's some kind of event, like a big anniversary, and they go on an archiving bent or the archivist decides to get in touch with them and, and archive all of these records. That is about the challenge. The, that gets me to the challenge of doing this type of research, though, which is the archives are very spotty. Student newspapers, right? They don't Tell mm-hmm. the behind the scenes of, of what's going on, sometimes I could match that with records at the radio station themselves. Uh, but that wasn't always the case. And I'm also relying on college students to do the archiving, to decide that something is worth preserving and getting it into the archives itself. And then there is the radio problem of most of the history of radio, of what goes out over the air, is not preserved. And in college radio, I would have to depend on whether or not a DJ recorded their shows. I, I never recorded my shows. I just, it never even occurred to me or that I could do that for one. And the thought of having myself recorded. I think, would have horrified me at the time. <laughs> um, <laughs> cool. but, you know, so lots of credit to those who uh, who did record themselves. Um, but so the, the recordings are actually not very common to run across. They do exist, um, and there are some pretty good collections. Uh, but but that, by and large, wasn't what I was looking at. At the same time, the the penchant of archives to focus on controversies led me to, I remember, When I was starting to kind of put the narrative together, the process was, is that I had all these little archival collections, not, not, most of them are not very big. And I would just go through and kind of write up what I had, just write up the stories to kind of figure out, okay, what actually happened here? And so I had no real agenda. It was just to tell the story. And then I started trying to match them together to see chronologically and thematically, what little stories went together. And I remarked to a friend of mine when I was starting that process that I have a whole bunch of opening vignettes and no actual narrative.
0: Oh, no.
1: (laughs) No no actual argument, really, to tie them together. Uh, So I had, it was like this big jigsaw puzzle of putting together these little stories and matching them to try to figure out it's, you know, it's a very, very local history and, and radio is a very local phenomenon, at least until recently, And how do you tell a national story through all of these local examples was the big challenge in addition to having lots and lots and lots of examples. So it was a process of of matching them together, leaving some to the side, which was very painful in some cases, because I would have spent a lot of time just writing up these stories. So I have a lot of text. I think at the last count, I wrote, gosh, what was it? About 260,000 words
0: for this book.
1: Wow. <laughs> and a lot of it uh, is is in a cuts folder.
0: Oh, my gosh. Should be a volume two. Well, yes. (laughs) (laughs) To be continued, for sure. (laughs) Well, um, let's talk a little bit about the the narrative, such as it is. So Live from the Underground starts in 1969, and it ends in 2003. Could you talk a little bit about um, why this periodization and how college radio evolved during this time? Yeah, so... I did cut
1: off eight chapters that deal (laughs) with, with, excuse me, that deal with um, basically around 1960 up to about 1978. And the reason that I cut them off is that those chapters deal with the emergence of college radio on FM in large numbers. And there's some regulatory reasons as to why that's the case, why it really doesn't emerge until the 1960s in large numbers. And then how FM is shaped in those years has a lot to do with uh, federal regulatory decisions and the emergence of the Public Broadcasting Act as well and the uh, Corporation uh, for Public Broadcasting. Um, Where this book picks up, though, uh, narratively, I couldn't fit what was going on in college radio in the 60s and 70s with what was going on in the late 70s, 80s, and 90s. Narratively, there was just too much difference, and that it didn't really hang together. Because this transformation happens in the 1970s, where college radio becomes, broadly speaking, this alternative radio space. And I'm talking about student-run college radio. Mm -hmm. And that idea of alternative radio is what gives birth to this modern college radio that we think of related to the 80s and the 90s, where it becomes this really important musical discovery space and part of the music industry's business model in promoting artists and a process of discovering new artists that could have influence in the mainstream that they would kind of cross over into commercial FM radio as it was fragmenting into these different genres and alternative radio becomes alternative rock radio by the 1990s. Mm-hmm. So college radio is really trans, uh, transformational in that transition that itself it that as a space it is transforming but it is then also helping to transform popular culture as we think of it broadly. Um, and nationally. And then there's also these currents of higher education as these institutions are transforming. So the 60s and the 70s story was really about the kind of multiversity moment, the student protest era, the counterculture. Those are the forces shaping college radio in those years. But in the 80s and the 90s, it's more shaped by what we would think of as the story of the neoliberalization of higher education and its, its role in structuring markets and culture and innovation more broadly. And, and everything going through higher education being kind of put to the test of the marketplace. And so, the, so together, those things were were really two different stories, and so that's why I have this this kind of '80s and '90s focus, and then you know, ending around the the 2000s, early 2000s. One, it was a source issue that a lot of my archives end in the late '90s because everything moves to email. Uh, mm-hmm. So, just the process of doing history was really structured by that technological transformation, even though the story that I was telling about college radio was not one that was dictated by technological transformation. That instead, I try to say that the, the changes that we see taking place in college radio now, or at least the disruptions that we see, are part of that larger story about the transformation of higher education and the politics of media, less than stories about the rise of the internet, even though that's certainly plays a role in the transformations we see in college radio. It's definitely not the thing that defines college radio.
0: I wonder if you could talk a little bit about, um, what exactly college radio is. So, I mean, if, if we can define it, if we can say it has, it has a culture, um, you could tell us a little bit about what college radio is and then, um, Could you talk about how it's similar to and different from national public radio? Because I imagine there are some similarities in the listening audience here.
1: Yes. And so college radio is actually the bigger category than I think even national public radio, because in some ways it kind of encompasses some of what national public radio is because educational radio uh, and college radio were these concepts that go back to the 1930s and the way that regulators wanted broadcasting to serve the public interest. And college radio itself goes back to the foundation of radio itself, that there have been college radio stations since we've had radio, uh, since a lot of the technology comes out of electrical engineering departments and student radio clubs. were experimenting right from the beginning of radio so that that was still college radio but what we think of as this non-commercial educational radio fm phenomenon which is stations that exist between 88.1 and 91.9 on the fm dial that's a construction of the 1940s that they set those stations aside then and there we start to see kind of a a diversification of what we think of as college radio or educational radio. And so there's lots of different types of stations that exist on that non-commercial band. And so when I talk about college radio, I'm mostly referring to student-run college stations where it is students in charge that the license is usually owned by the trustees of the university and that they let students make the programming decisions by and large, of what goes out over those signals. From there, things get a little fuzzier, though, because sometimes those student-run stations will have hours of national public Uh, radio in the morning or the evening, and then they go back to students running the boards. Uh, Or maybe they'll have a few more syndicated programs that come in and out. And then late night, it's students or community DJs that take over. So there's sort of this sliding scale um, of more professional NPR stations to student run. But then we have, starting in the 60s and 70s, NPR emerges as a national network with Corporation for Public Broadcasting funding. And so that's another type of college radio station that is more professionally run where students really don't have any role. And that's part of that larger transformation that some stations were student run and they become those professionally run NPR stations. So that's one of the reasons why NPR is kind of a bad guy in this book, Mm -hmm. because I'm trying to write about these student-run stations. And a lot of times what they're doing is fighting against this idea that they have to be more like NPR, that they have to be more professionally run, or that the station will be taken over and turned into a public radio station where students really don't have any say. Uh, So, you know, even stations, some of the first flagship NPR stations are those college stations turned into professional broadcasters, so University of Washington, um, even my uh, PhD alma mater, Boston University, WBUR, which produces tons of uh, syndicated content, news and talk radio type programming. Uh, those that station used to be a very community oriented station in the '60s and the early '70s, and then it becomes uh, a national public radio. Uh, affiliated station. Uh, not every NPR station is a college station. Some are municipally owned stations like WNYC or WGBH here in Boston. So it's this really messy world is what I'm trying to say, that there's there's all these different types of stations. There's many different bureaucratic hierarchical setups for these stations. But nestled within this, though, are these, are these student-run stations. And they're constantly in conversation. It's not like they're this protected little entity out there on the side that nobody pays attention to. They're always in conversation with those other notions of what college radio could be or is. And so it's this is very, very diverse space. Uh,
0: right. And and um, the Live from the Underground really shows how college radio becomes kind of a battleground for um, a lot of tensions that um, you know, larger, um, broader cultural conflicts in the late 20th century. And so it's full of these richly researched anecdotes um, that talk about college radio as kind of a battleground for tensions between town and gown, between students and faculty, between independent and commercial entities, between liberals and conservatives. Um, I, if I, if you can if you can pick just one, I wonder if you could tell us about your favorite college radio conflict that appears in the book.
1: Yeah, so it, it's hard to pick just one, but <laughs> I mean and and that it relates to that bigger discovery that I made of how this book became something other than what I thought it was going to be because looking back at my college radio experience, it, it was so fused with conflict over what radio could be and rejecting this kind of alternative FM radio juggernaut, this corporate juggernaut. And so I expected that I would see these stations as being kind of bastions for one way of doing radio against that kind of corporate way of doing radio. And what I found was really not the case. And I think my favorite example is probably what happened at the University of Kansas uh, at their radio station in Lawrence in the late 1980s, because that station really encapsulated all of the ways that college radio could serve these many different functions. And it becomes a battleground for or over what those different functions are. And what I like about that example is almost everyone involved there has a real legitimate claim to the station. So the station is associated with this, you know, the very prestigious school of journalism and broadcasting there that produces, you know, many famous broadcasters, you know, it's it's producing professional journalists and professional broadcasters who want to have this experience of doing radio and doing it in a way where it's going to get them a job in the industry. And so they've got to have these experiences like doing what will, you know, they think of maybe as real radio, that it's a laboratory kind of pedagogical experience. At the same time though, it's deeply connected to this emerging music scene. And there are student participants who really care about this station as a community station, as something connected to the music scene, as something that is playing an educational role in that it is showing listeners types of music that they otherwise wouldn't be able to hear. And so both sets of students have a legitimate claim to the station. And yeah, I might side with one versus the other based on my own profile, but you know it's hard to say, well, your student fee is going to pay for the station, uh, It should be serving your needs. But at the same time, it also occupies public space. And the, the airwaves belong to the public, and if it's going out and reaching a community, even though it is a pedagogical station serving these educational functions for students, it does have a public role to play. And so the interaction with the community there is also really vital in pushing back against this idea that these stations should only serve the interests of the campus. And I think it's, it's that element that is the most endangered at these stations that high institutions of higher education don't just exist for the people on campus they exist for the society as a as a whole and they they occupy public space and really Important ways, and so they have an obligation to be part of those those bigger conversations. Uh, but you know this this fight at Kansas it's so hilarious because it just reaches mm-hmm. these epic proportions. Uh, there's picketing of businesses downtown when they are selling underwriting uh, support to the station. They get the guy who actually helps launch the sound alternative identity of the station in the late 1970s. guy named Steve Greenwood, he kind of sticks around the station and, you know, he never graduates. He's just like a real scene insider, real devotee of, of underground music. He actually ends up turning the station into the FCC to get them fired for doing improper underwriting practices. And, you know, it's just this huge fight. And at one point the, a student gets in, in trouble for, um, Basically, they, they were trying to force them to do more coverage of sports events, and they're covering a Kansas basketball game. And the student who comes on afterwards had the hardcore show and he starts swearing over the air. (laughs) Uh, Mm -hmm. The actual title of the, the subtitle of that section begins with what he said over the air. And, you know, of course, of course, the advisor of the station is listening at that moment and hears this happen and just like absolutely flips out. And, you know, that's not what leads to the FCC fine there. It's Steve Greenwood turning them in for underwriting violations, but it's, this such an amazing crossroads of all of these characters and interests and and everybody who, who who really has legitimate claim to these stations and I think that's part of the larger conflict that these or, or why these stations are so good at helping us see what the culture wars were really like for. Ordinary Americans is because they're a place where participants and listeners have really legitimate claims to these stations, and they're places where we can see them happening. That they can call up and they can write to the student newspaper, and they can get mad at you know the university president, and the president will respond. Uh, that that we can we can see these controversies play out in in. Detail in ways that we can't necessarily when we're talking about the PMRC and Tipper Gore and Congress and labeling of, of music labels and that kind of thing.
0: Well, when I was in graduate school in Atlanta about a decade ago, I was a huge fan of Georgia State's um, mm-hmm. radio station. And I um, recently um, got connected to a student in an undergraduate uh, certificate program that I run who has her own Radio show, and I was I was like Kismet. I didn't I didn't know students still did that. That's amazing. I wondered if you could talk a little bit about um, what is the state of college radio today. Um, the, the, is the Vanderbilt station gone? Or anyway, yeah. <laughs> so it's so the idea of
1: college radio as the place to find on your FM dial new music that you couldn't hear anywhere else or that you were most likely to hear something that maybe you read about in a zine and the band is playing locally that you can go and hear on the college radio station that that band and kind of discover your next favorite or college radio is the place that's going to be the place to launch the next big thing it's not the only game in town anymore it certainly still plays that role and it's still very connected to local music scenes and, and fulfills a lot of those community radio functions, but there's more places on the internet and, and broadly speaking that, that serve those roles. But the thing is, is that college radio, because it's always been this very diverse space, it has been many different things. And because we have let students, be in control and figure out what those things are, I think we're at a really interesting moment where the, the future can be written that these college students can figure out what the next thing that college radio may be known for will be. And maybe that is just being local radio, being a source of local media as the commercial support for those types of institution dries up the universities maybe will will fill fill those roles more so than than they have in the past or will return to that. But I think it's you know it's really up to the students to decide. And the real danger is whether or not universities are going to support students in doing that work and whether universities support that community function. So my radio station still exists technically and actually it holds a very prominent position. If you walk mm-hmm. through the student center of at Vanderbilt there's this, you know, open windowed view into this state of the art radio studio. It broadcasts online. But what really disturbs me about it And, you know, so I'm very happy for the students who still get to have this experience and it is still very much college radio. But the disturbing part is that the university sees it as for the campus only. It's only for the students that the university seems to have turned away from performing that larger community function through radio and providing a place where community members can come in and bridge the very stark boundary of town and gown that exists between that institution and and larger Nashville. And so that is one challenge is that universities have to care about being in a community and do the institutional support necessary to forge those connections. And the other is that students have to have time to go down mm-hmm. to the radio station and to volunteer their time. Most of that labor is unpaid. And I know for my students, they generally don't have time to volunteer. If they're not getting paid, if it doesn't go towards a course credit, uh, they're, they're not going to be able to do it. And so it's that that larger challenge that we have to overcome if students are going to be able to do that creative, innovative work of, of what radio is going to be next.
0: It's very well said. And um, and Kate, that leads us to our traditional um, NBN final question, which is, what are you working on next? So I have to figure out
1: what those eight chapters are. Uh, <laughs> I, have, I have an idea um, <laughs> that I keep referring to it as the Islands of Authenticity book, mm-hmm. which is a quote from Douglas Rossinow's book on the politics of authenticity about the student uh, the the new left uh, at University mm-hmm. of Texas in the nineteen sixties, and so I think I have an idea of what it's going to be is sort of about the birth of this idea of alternative radio as we think about it in the nineteen seventies and onward, um, and then I've got definitely a a. F- fighting over NPR on College Station's book, In Me. I've got a cutting room floor of NPR behaving badly um, and, and good sometimes as well. So those, that's what I'm working on next.
0: Well, those sound amazing. And we will look forward to whichever one um, comes out next and hope you'll come back um, on the NBN and talk to us about it.
1: Absolutely. I would love to.
0: All right. Well, thanks, Catherine. And uh, this, is li- this book is Live from the Underground, A History of College Radio, just out by UNC Press. Um, and go run out to your, your bookstore or uh, local record store and, and pick up a copy.